Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today I have the privilege of sharing a recent conversation I had with Wally Mitchell. Interestingly enough, Wally started out his working life as an electrician, but soon found himself volunteering his spare time to assist St John's in New Zealand. He has now been working with St John's for over 40 years and is now in the role of Canterbury District Operations Manager in New Zealand, based out of Christchurch. In fact, Wally assumed this role only three weeks prior to the March 15th mosque terror attacks. Listen in as I chat with Wally about not only his professional background, but also about his personal experience in command of the St. John's response to the horrific incident that occurred earlier this year. All right, welcome to Pebble in the Pond podcast. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Wally Mitchell, all the way from New Zealand. Wally, kia ora. Kia ora, Sam. (laughs) Thanks very much for for coming across uh, to Australia and uh, and for coming uh, to this uh, important frontline mental health conference. I appreciate you taking your time to, to uh, have a chat with me today. Well, do you just want to tell us a bit of a background about you um, prior to you getting in the role you're in now, but, but what your journey's been professionally? Well, professionally, I started as an electrician in life. Electrician? Yeah. Where, where was that? In Christchurch? No, no, no. I was, uh, that was in Auckland. I did my time as an electrician and ended up in the sugar industry, oddly enough. Here from Queensland, sugar. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah um, shortly after finishing my time as an electrician, I moved to um, a power station on the north, and um, there I worked as in that role for probably only a few months, and I moved into industrial instrumentation. At that time, I uh, the group of people I was working with on the power station were. Um, the volunteers who delivered the ambulance service to our local community. So I teamed up with those guys and both myself and my wife joined the local St. John Ambulance Service as a volunteer and that was kind of the beginning of my journey into ambulance. What, what year was that? 1978. Okay, so you, you volunteered to start with. Yep. Did you, was there a, a training process that you was involved with? Was it a... Well, I was pretty comprehensive in those days. You did a first aid course. <laughs> you got a uniform. You went to training once a week. Then you went out and dealt with people who were uh, bent and broken. And Is that right? Pretty sick, yeah. So you got fir- first aid training. Yeah, that was the... And then a weekly training. Yeah. And then you were on the road. That was it, yeah. This is in... And, and the call system was that you had a telephone jack installed in your house and you took the red phone home and plugged it in to your house and when somebody called the emergency number for that community you picked the phone up and took the call and which community was this again which that was in a, um, a beach community called one tree point Ruakaka, basically the okay. station was called marsden station in those days wow. that's in northland and yeah. so, so that was voluntary? That was voluntary, yeah. How many years were you doing that, you and your wife? 24 years as volunteers. Wow. Station manager, as a volunteer station manager for probably eight of those years. During that time, we had uh, three daughters and uh, I continued to work at the local oil refinery as an instrument technician, supervisor in the instrument department through the construction of the the new oil refinery that was built there, the commissioning of it and the subsequent ongoing maintenance all the time. Three young daughters growing up. All the time doing around about 
probably voluntarily, probably we were on average doing probably 100 hours a week standby duty. 100 hours on top of your job? Yeah. Whilst trying to bring up three daughters? Yeah, yeah. That's how you did it. Wow. Mm. That would have been challenging. It didn't seem so. Well, it was, but you yeah. know, you look back on it and you wonder how you fitted, fitted Fit your day way. into your life kind of thing, but um, it was just what we did. Where, where did that where did that initial drive or, or the desire for you to want to be involved with the, param, with the paramedic or the ambulance? Um, you know, when I left school, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. Um, I kind of went into the apprenticeship because that was what you did. You'd got a trade in those days when you came from where I came from. Um, when we had first contact volunteering for ambulance, um, it was, I think it connects with you. You kind of catch the bug. It's that, uh, I guess, to a degree, it's the, there's a little bit of adrenaline rush, but what really kind of, I think, did it for me was the fact that you get that sense of privilege being able to help people in time of need if they're, uh, you know, that, that they're in an absolute state of crisis. If somebody calls an ambulance, they're in a state of crisis. The wheels have fallen off their world and you have the privilege of being able to bring some sense of control back into their world to, you know, to make that difference, to actually write or help this process around them healing, whatever it is that, that's, that's of their concern at the time. And that kind of, that's who I am, I guess. I just, yeah. you know, it comes from the heart and it's kind of, it's kind of, you're either that kind of person or you're not. Yeah. And your wife obviously was very similar. Very similar. Yeah, she's still she's still working frontline ambulance. She's an intensive care paramedic and station manager in in Fongaray, actually. Okay. I, I commute to Christchurch on a regular basis to do what I'm doing. Wow. Mm. How far is that commute? Because I'm not as familiar with the um, of New Zealand. But it's um, it's around about a two-hour flight. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so you're down in Christchurch for a number of days and then you go home? Oh, every three weeks I go home. That's where the daughters are, the grandchildren. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. So so you, so 24 years of service um, as a volunteer. How did you find being a volunteer? Um, challenging, enjoyable, um, full of interesting moments and opportunities. Um, this... Uh, I guess it was a sense of um, access into a social world as well. I guess there was some connection with, because of the, the people I work with. Um, sense of belonging to a community, a sense of actually doing something, adding something, giving something of value back to the community. Um, I don't know, all those kinds of yeah. you know things that go with that. Was it typical of volunteer uh, organisations, which even still today were there, Working long hours, uh, under resourced, but just doing what they can to, to keep it ticking. Yeah, yeah, um, very much so. Uh, one of the things that we, we, were, we prided ourselves on was the fact that even as volunteers, we, we strove to be professional. We, as the evolution of, you know, along with the evolution of ambulance within New Zealand came the, the training pathways, the formal qualifications. Uh, um, we were, even though we were volunteers, we engaged with those where we could, got the qualification, we trained hard, we believed we could compete, especially, uh, you know, it wasn't, professional wasn't about being paid, professional was about what you delivered in terms of service and how you, how you approached it. And that having that professional standing, I think, as a volunteer in a what was an evolving industry was, you know, in, across New Zealand was it definitely was um, quite incentivizing. I suppose you could say. Did uh, do you think that the the volunteer because obviously it still exists in, in New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. Still. We depend immensely on our volunteer groups these days. Still, has there been a, a change uh, in the volunteer structure or in the way it's delivered or the the capacity? Is there? Um, over the yeah. Years? Well, as ambulances evolved, our our um, levels of practice have have evolved massively. Um, what what we do at each qualification level now is 
you know, it's it's very comprehensive. It's very uh, thorough. thorough. It's very yeah, difference making in terms of life saving. It's uh, takes um, we have ongoing clinical um, continuous con- clinical education programs in place in order to have an authority to practice. Um, under a medical directorship that's assigned, that's assigned based on qualification and competency. You have to work to maintain that competency. You have to have so many patient contacts, um, volunteering, the NZTA, which is the um, transport administration body, have set rules around fatigue management. So now a volunteer can't work a day and then go and spend the night on duty. You've got a maximum of 14 hours worked on any day, so that's added complexity. There's all sorts of things that have come along and put pressure on. The organisation and structure of St John has changed in a number of different ways. That's brought complexity to volunteering as well. So, so for 24 years, you, you and, and your wife uh, volunteers uh, in the ambulance, St John's. Mm-hmm. Well, she actually went full-time after about, I think it was about 20 years. Okay. Yeah, she started full-time. She returned to work after children into yep. full-time ambulance career. And I continued in my other job, in my real job yeah. in those days uh, until 2002, which you know, then the kids were a bit older and money was a little bit, yeah. um, a little bit less important, I suppose, with the kids not being in the frame. Then I went full-time as well. So 2002 uh, was then when you first moved over full-time into the ambulance? It was. And you'd, how old were your daughters at that point? Uh, my youngest daughter was about 14, 15. Okay. Mm. And how did, they, uh, how did they enjoy or be part of you know your life as a volunteer? Obviously, they would have suffered some of the attention. Uh, they all left school. Well, apart from the first one, the eldest daughter, she went. She decided she was going to go to nursing. The other two left school, went to university, and decided that they didn't want anything to do with the medical profession at all. Yes. Um, they spent. Each of them went to different universities, and they spent around about twelve months at that university. Got bored to tears with what they were doing. Just about said a bad word. You didn't say that. <laughs> and. Um, both ended up in the medical industry. Oh, um, wow. One's a, she's, um, works the MRI, she's a medical yep. imaging technician and she works the MRI in Northern Base Hospital. My other daughter is an osteopath and she's uh, practicing in Singapore at the moment. I must be very proud. I am, I am. It's, yeah. uh, it's quite a, as I said, going back to when you're doing 100 hours a week plus your day job and trying to bring up a family and you, both you and your wife were involved with it. I mean, that would have been, uh, yeah, quite challenging. Um, I've got three kids and I'm trying to be home as much as I can and I, I, I'm not successful at it, but uh, I'm trying. I, I look back today and I think, how did we ever do it? <laughs> I really do. Well, well, kudos to you for, for managing it and obviously you got through it and, and have done really well with that. So, so 2002, you went full-time in, into the St. John's Ambulance. Yep, went back to university and... Um, we stationed I, I, I was still stationed at that that original station. It, well, was we what Marsden Power Station? Uh, sorry, Marsden Ambulance Station. Uh, we changed its name to Green Bay yep. Station, so it embodied the greater geographical area that it covered. Um, and uh, went. I was a paramedic then, as a volunteer, I qualified as a paramedic, uh, what we called a BLS paramedic, and. Then went to uh, back to uni and studied to, to get uh, practice at um, what was called an advanced paramedic, or, or now it's called an intensive care paramedic okay. qualification. So you did that whilst you were working full time. Yep. Um, so yeah, I had to do the study during around my work, and um, and part of that process, I realised I needed a higher volume of patient contacts, so I when a job position came up in Fongaray, which was the metropolitan area for, for Northland, um, I, I moved to, to a watch up there and went, went on the road front line there. Yeah. How did you notice the difference from going to 
volunteering to full time. I mean, obviously, as a day oh. job, it was going to be a lot. So, so I went to work for years. I worked at the refinery for years, and it was great. I got overseas, doing overseas. I managed projects. I every, I did a, a bunch of different leadership roles, and, um, and I really enjoyed it. But it was time for a change. You always went to work, and you always were inside the fence kind of thing. So ambulance kind of creates opportunities that mm-hmm. everything is different every day. Yeah. Um, so, so and uh, I, I, the reason I went to ambulance full time was was because I figured it was time that I did something I was passionate about doing. Yeah. And it was living the dream, really. It was great. Loved it. Found it, found it invigorating, motivating. The study complemented that kind of that growth and that passion for for growing and that that spaces, but you know, in that industry. So, two thousand two full time, and then what what. Uh what happened, uh, like, if you, were you doing service then until up to 2019 when you took your new role? What, what were you? Um, so I worked frontline yes. um, on the 4x4 roster system. It's 12-hour shift pay system, day, day, night, night. As a paramedic, then as an intensive care paramedic, um, flight medic. So I worked with the Northland Emergency Services rescue helicopter for, for 10 years, basically. Um, during part of that time, I worked as a rural support officer, which was training others, um, um, connecting with people around the Northland space, delivering training and support to the the, the, the people there, um, which I was really I really loved because you met everybody across the whole of the district, and you know managed to share and grow people, share the information, develop people, grow people. Really loved seeing people grow to be there. To reach their potential, that role was disestablished, um, and it was replaced by what they call a territory manager role. So I applied for that territory manager for four years, five years, I think. So that got you out of the front line, but more managing the people. Yeah, and all the time I was actually I was being rostered to rescue work on the helicopter, and so I was maintaining my clinical front line sort of contact as well at the yeah. same time. Earlier this year, that um, position came up in Christchurch, so I put my hand up for that. Um, I always had a, a, a desire to go and work someplace different, like as in the, in the South Island, because geographically it's enormously different to, uh, to, to Northland. Um, so I, I kind of just, it was a bit of a half-handed hand rise, just a, oh yeah, could be interested. And then boom. And then boom, there I was into that position so you took uh, in that posi- you took over the role of Canterbury District Operations Manager correct St John's Ambulance uh, in late February 2019 uh, and so leading up to that you obviously 40 years experience you know in the in the ambulance um, in St John's Ambulance uh, voluntary to paid um, intensive care paramedic flight medical um, rural support officer, so you've done a lot of stuff, territory manager, and, and so now you took up the role in Christchurch, which, as you just mentioned, was a two-hour flight from. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're commuting. Um, how many? Is you say you're there for three weeks at a time? Oh, it's whatever. Um, okay. but it's, it's kind of it's not a fixed rotation. Or, okay. You know, it's just what we can work out travel-wise and schedule-wise, and yeah. try and book flights well ahead so we get the good deal options. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you know, from a relationship perspective, it's uh, it's it's not the healthiest of situations, but it's actually it's it's not a bad thing either. It yeah. kind of helps you realise that there's strength in the, in, the, in, the, in your relationship. It's working. Yeah, good. Yeah. We we talked long and hard about it before we did it. So, yeah. Yeah, good on you. Uh, and and so February, and then so three weeks prior, so March fifteen, um, the mosque terror attacks were inflicted. They were. This, uh, three weeks into the position, what what, what were you thinking? Initially? Initially. I thought, somebody's pulling my chain here. Yeah. I thought, these guys are trying me out because I'm new and they want to see how I react to it. It's a training so, drill. Yeah, I thought it was a drill. <laughs> Were you notified by a phone call? Or were you, no, was I was seeing somewhere on the, 
Users. They tried to notify me by a phone call, but um, we were, I was dealing with a fairly sensitive issue with my boss's boss. Okay. Um, and I was in a, it's not, she's not the type of person you hang up on when your phone goes beep because there's another call coming up. And we were fairly deep in this conversation about ways to react to a certain situation. And um, my phone starts beeping and I was like, no, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> I've got to continue this conversation. This won't look good three weeks in yeah, a row. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that happened a number of times while she was talking to me. And um, then somebody was tapping me on the shoulder. Uh, I work in the justice precinct in Christchurch. You know, the just, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a post-earthquake you have. So it's a post-earthquake facility where all the emergency services for Canterbury uh, are headquartered basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the fourth floor in there. So this runner comes bounding into the open office area and starts tapping me on the shoulder. I'm like, can't you see I'm talking to my boss here? I can't hang up. You need to come now. It's like, oh, really? Yes, there's an active shooter in town. You need to come now. It's like, Norma, I think I'd better go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and at that time, her page was starting to go off because that, that yeah, was so awesome. she realised I needed to go Contacted anyway. Too, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I'm thinking, oh, these guys are, they're just testing me, it's just done. But it took me about five and a half seconds to realise that it was a real thing and it was on, it was all on. So, at that point, obviously, you told there was an active shooter in downtown Christchurch. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was what was the what was the sequence of events from your side of things? So went to the uh, ambulance specific emergency operations centre. Um, we fired that into gear. Um, we people started to come in. You remember I'm new in town and I'm kind of Still I know where the room is and I know kind of what we need to do from a response perspective. But who's who and who takes what role? I have no real idea about so. Um, we have an emergency manager for St. John who, who lives in that same space. So he, he's in the room and he's got all the contacts and he's got all the people and he, he, he's able to facilitate getting them into that space quite quickly. So um, uh, it was a case of, well, let's understand what we've got. Let's get the team, team working to try and piece together what is actually happening, understand what our capacity is at the moment understand what our current frontline workload is at the moment, non-incident related, what resources do we have available that we can call on, just putting the whole package together and starting from the beginning. And at that point in time, was the shooter, was the shooter still? Shooter was still, he was still out there, he was still active at that stage, yeah. The intelligence around that was from um, an incident perspective we at the end we realized that we ran from an intelligence perspective about 15 minutes behind the incident as it as it unraveled just the the nature of communication the rate of escalation the volume of people we were dealing with we kind of we ran behind the clock all the time with them yeah Um, and there's nothing we could do about them is that is that standard? Is that good? I mean, is that so? so it was a, it was an incident that um, escalated very very rapidly, and whenever you uh, have an escalation at that pace, and you're talking about the volumes of victims and the dimensions involved, it's just about impossible from a control perspective to actually keep pace with what's going on. Mm. If you get something that's going to last over a longer time the intelligence keeps pace with the incident. Um, okay. In this case, it just, because it ran, I mean, it was 18 minutes from the guy, the time the, time the guy started shooting to the time he was captured, which is, and he'd been through two mosques in that time. Mm. And that's- Across that's town un- too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's unprecedented. That's how fast, that gives you an idea as to how fast it, it escalated. He, he shot in that time, over 98 people. Fundamentally, um, the calls were taken to the call centre. Yep. 
the dispatch, they were passed across to the desk that dispatches Metropolitan Christchurch. The dispatcher started getting the messaging out to the vehicles that were available, looking to free up vehicles that would soon be available. Um, and yeah, it escalated from a dispatch point of view. We, we ended up, fortunately, we ended up I'll cover it off in the presentation tomorrow, but there was a series of coincidences that occurred in Christchurch that in, on that particular day, at that particular time, the whole of Christchurch City had the capacity to respond to that incident in a unique way. Um, part of that was our ambulance capacity. We had a number of extra vehicles on the road on that day doing clinical ride-alongs. Um, <clears throat> We had some training going on at the Make Ready Hub, well, Durham Street facility that uh, had some prime responders available in it. Uh, there are people that work in rural communities who basically deliver advanced life support care. Mm -hmm. That the doctors and nurses who work in medical facilities and you know across rural New Zealand. Yeah. So we had a, a bunch of resources sitting there. Um, there was bed capacity in Christchurch Hospital that, that was unprecedented in its own right. There was um, emergency service, not emergency service, AOS, which is um, Armed Defender Squad, and um, STG, which is Special Tactical Group Police Training Session, inter international one. In Christchurch? In Christchurch on that day. They'd broken for lunch at that same time. Um, we had a couple of additional medics assigned to that training program. Wow. So there was a series of events that created a response capacity that any other day, yeah. probably of the year, you'd never have that capability. Isn't that um, just amazing? It, it is, and that resulted in, the locations actually were quite relevant as well. The fact that he started and had his highest victim hit rate at the Al Noor Mosque, which is only two minutes from the hospital drive time. That fact made wow. a big difference on the day. Um, so, yeah, so so what happened was we had senior, a lot of well-experienced clinicians. Oh, the other thing that was quite relevant was it was a Blue Watch day. Blue Watch are the watch that's been on when the Christchurch earthquakes happened, both big Christchurch earthquakes. Um, I think when the Kaikoura earthquake happened, when there was a, a, a bus accident in the and the Port Hills that had 48 something victims. Uh, when the, the mine disaster occurred on the west coast, it was that same, same bunch of people that were, were on. And when the mosque shootings occurred, same team again. So they're very experienced in responding to these significant incidents. And uh, they, that experience allows them to make sound well, um, you know, life-saving clinical decisions, if you yeah. like, you know, en masse. Yeah. Um, so that was another circumstance that was quite unique. And how, obviously, 18 minutes, I mean, that would have, I mean, would have felt like forever, I'd imagine. Um, you know. So that was 18 minutes till the offender was caught, you know, taken into custody. Um, <coughs> Our response, the, we had cleared all scenes and had everybody in ED in under 70 minutes, and that's you're talking from about. both mosques. From both mosques. Well, yeah. and obviously, there's no real, I mean, uh, uh, you, no one would have seen that this would have ever have happened. No, no, it doesn't happen in New Zealand. No, and no training drill, I mean, would have ever really. Have it's one of those situations where um, it had been the, the active shooter scenarios is something that police have trained for and they, and they do. Um, from an ambulance perspective, it's kind of, it's never been a scenario we've, we've tested simply because of the risk of it happening was you know, perceived as being incredibly low in New Zealand safe. Mm. Right? We have the occasional unusual thing happen, but yeah. we don't typically expect to see something like that happen. And even though 
like the, sh- the shooter, because I, I, I mean, you would have been concerned about the safety of the team as totally. well. Totally, right? that was that was first and foremost in our mind. Yeah, uh, there's two two levels. Uh, you wrap it up in welfare basically as, as the initial safety, and then what what our medics, what our teams were exposed to basically, and you know their welfare and recovery from that were, were priorities for us. Yeah, big priorities. So, so the uh, so obviously with with the response, I mean, and the time is is phenomenal. I mean, really, for them to be able to do what they've done, and and the coordination of all that, I mean, that's it's remarkable, isn't it? Looking back on it, it is, it is. Um, not one of the victims that was, pardon me, able to be saved. Forensically, everybody who died suffered irreversibly like they were going to die from their injuries regardless those who suffered near fatal injuries two of which died subsequently like we're talking one on the same day and another one a couple of weeks later um, fundamentally the decisions our crews made on the ground saved volumes of people mm. yeah like it, 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 it was an unprinted, unprecedented response, and it was the guys at the front line who actually made the decisions that saved the lives. Mm. Basically, they stopped, they plugged holes, they loaded them in ambulance, took them to the hospital where surgery was available to them, and they, that's what they needed. That was what was going to save lives on the day. You get an intensive care paramedic and tell him he can't treat that patient for his bullet wounds. Until you get authority. No, no, no. Well, they they independently can do that. Okay. Yeah, they will. Every time they'll stay and play and treat the ones on this day. Those guys made the decision to load and go. Minimum treatment and the surgery. That's where they need to be. Yeah. And that's what saved lives on the day. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you must be incredibly proud of the team. Um, I mean, it's for, for what they achieved. I mean, oh, massively. The, the, the whole of organisation response was, was, you know, spectacular, really. It was. It, it was. Um, the guys at the front line, I just can't commend them high enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and everybody who contributed along the way. Same, same deal. Everybody's behaved absolutely appropriately to get the right, right, right outcome. And the... The uh, and so the, the the services worked well together, obviously, because I mean, at that point in time, even though the shooter may have been captured 18 minutes later, it's still unknown, isn't it, that there wasn't other active shooters or there wasn't other threats. Well, I mean, when he was captured, he um, he stated he, he indicated that he was working with eight other shooters. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So there was a massive heightened security concern. Yeah. Yeah. And considering. Obviously, the ambulance was going in and out. I mean, um, you know, things like the, the hospital emergency department went into lockdown because that, there was actually gunshots reported at the emergency department at one stage outside that emergency department. That was a misinterpretation that was figured in the end from a message that came through that said that, that gunshots had been heard there because the mosque is just across the park. Uh, and then there was wounded people arriving. So there was a miscommunication around yeah, right. how how that was translated and the sequence of when that would have happened, because yeah. Well, well yeah, shortly after, some some shot um, some of the victims actually ran across the park to the emergency department with bullet holes in them. So. Yeah, it's uh, I mean it's absolutely horrendous. Obviously the ordeal uh, that that the team would have had to endure, but I mean also three weeks into your into your role. I mean, this is, you couldn't have gotten a, a tougher challenge or a, a situation that, I mean, would have, would have tested you, I, I couldn't imagine. So, so I've had some fairly complimentary feedback about my, my performance, but I actually, I, I, I don't rate my performance like that at all. I actually rate the performance of the whole of team. Yeah. Um, everybody around me and connected right from the coalface right back to to that role was what made that happen. Mm. Um, we had to, as a team, we had to have absolute faith in the fact that the guys at the sharp end, the guys who were in the in the hot zone, who were yeah. working with the, the victims under the protection of the police, 
because uh, there was um, there was thought to be a shooter actually still in the mosque. Mm. They hadn't cleared it for him. There was um, what they thought was an IED in in, in the first mosque in the El Nur mosque. Um, so our guys were working around that, trying to well, where they were retrieving patients to load them in ambulances and get them away. Uh, so from those decisions right the way through the support network of the leadership team and making sure that we had um, capacity to handle the makeup of the vehicles when they came clear of the scene so we could get them back and available for to respond back again. The, um, the numbers of um, either the, the night shift coming on early so that the guys coming back from the incident could be given the choice of standing down. The, there was a, a whole cascading of effects that, uh, you know, there was a complete team effort. And yeah. It wasn't about me, it was about what, what everybody else did really. So. If, if you're looking, obviously frontline responders, emergency service workers, um, I mean, they're dealing with fairly traumatic experiences regularly, but to get something like this of this magnitude is such so severe and, and uh, I don't know what the word is for it. Uh, I mean, it's it must be, and I know that we'll, we'll touch on this now for the for post event. Um, what what sort of support was put in place, but. Obviously, uh, traumatic events like this, I mean, they don't occur very regularly, but even if they're, they're regularly exposed to, um, to traumatic experiences on the road uh, or, or with the ambulance, with what they're doing regularly day to day, but to see an event like this, I mean, it's... So, so that was kind of um, the reality. That, I mean, I've dragged dozens and dozens of people out of crash vehicles and various, you know, situations for many years and uh, and it has an impact, but it doesn't have an impact like this had yeah. on, on the team. And I think one of the biggest differences is, is that a, a car crash or, a, you know, an accidental kind of um, firearm discharge that takes somebody out or, you know, a fall from a building or, you know, it's an act that that has consequences but it's never generally a deliberate act right this was an act mm. to bring terror it was an act mm. to actually bring fear and to, to it was a, it was an attack specifically on a on a, one of our community groups mm. that that um just just wreaked harm and devastation like you couldn't even perceive really. I mean, you hear about it overseas and war zones and things like that, but this was, yeah. you know, completely next level. And I think the fact that it was an act of terror, it was a conscious act that was perpetrated against others, made it worse. Yeah. How many times worse? I don't know, but I would say 10 times, 100 times worse. Yeah. For the crews that responded on the day. So if we go after the event, then obviously um, the ongoing monitoring, uh, to checking in the, the, the tools and resources available to the team after. Do you just want to talk a little bit about that and how that was rolled out? Yeah, so, you know, the starting point was recognising the, the extreme nature of it for the crews that had been exposed to it. I talked about Blue Watch before, but it wasn't all Blue Watch. There was a bunch of people who ended up in there. We had transfer vehicle, patient transfer vehicle drivers and the likes who who ended up being sucked into it um, wouldn't normally go to any trauma or any frontline kind of work but they were a resource that was drawn into it. There were people from rural stations who were coming into town had just dropped off patients at the hospital who got sucked into it. So while we talk about a particular watch in Metro Christchurch there was actually there was more than 50 odd people that responded in some form to the incident itself. Mm. So, so capturing who those people were was we knew was always going to be a bit of a challenge up front. The um, the the rostered crews that were on we knew would be coming back in and really struggling with what they'd been through. So we made sure we had day crews 
available. Sorry, the night crews coming on behind them, so they were there early to take over the shift if need be. Um, interestingly enough, it wasn't hard to find people to do that because they knew it had gone down. They wanted to be a part of it, and the best thing be, you know, it was easy for them to come in and do that transfer. It connected them with the incident, mm. so that vicarious kind of contract was quite an important thing. For the guys coming off, they were like stunned mullets. I couldn't describe it any other way. They were really, they were really impacted by it. Um, didn't know what to think. Um, but we, um, we, we, one of our territory managers um, was there. Basically, the, the Christchurch is quite unique in that it's a hub-based facility. It's a make-ready hub-based facility. So all vehicles that respond in Christchurch come through this one facility. It's not like they went back to their own stations to make up. They all came, they had to come back through this one facility. <coughs> so we could put a person there. We could put the, the, the oncoming crews there. We could put mm -hmm. a support network in place just based through that. So it was, a, it was a real, it made it quite a bit easier than having to track down a whole bunch of other people. As they came off their trucks, they were kind of debriefed about the part they played, just very, very briefly um, told that they were stood down if they wanted to be stood down. They were uh, sort of taken off and given a bit of a shoulder to cry on, a pat on the back, a cup of tea, whatever they wanted. Um, they were also given, it was their first day shift of a block of four, four. so we, we basically indicated to them all that they had a choice. We understood that you know, tonight's going to be tough, tomorrow might be tougher. You have a choice. You don't have to come to work tomorrow if you don't want to. And the reason we did that, we, after the Christchurch earthquakes, uh, the, the, all the crews who responded on the day were stood down. for the, they, they were told not to return to work for the, the remainder of their block. And the feedback about that was really, really negative. It was like people who did that believed they were doing the right thing by giving these people time off, giving mm -hmm. them space out. It's but it, um, but uh, the, the very negative reports back about the effects of that, because one of the things that came back was where that group of people get their 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 support, their 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 comfort zone, where they get their debriefing capacity, where they get that sense of connection with people who know what they are feeling and understanding, comes from that group of people that they responded with. So they were given the choice. You can have the rest of the block off. You can have tomorrow off, the next night, the following night, the whole block, one day, two days, whatever you want. Just let us know. And um, they all went home and said, no, I think I'll come to work tomorrow. And they all came to work and did the whole block. Every last one of them came back and finished their whole block. And they being given that choice, the feedback we've had about that has been massive, that it's, uh, that has been, it was very, very valuable. It helped them connect, it helped them debrief, it helped them have that sense of being supported because they were with people who understood where they were at. Um, plus we wrapped some support around them as well. Like we yeah. had contacts, we had psychologists available, um, with peer support in, in place. Um, we escalated that quite rapidly. We yeah. <coughs> um, day four, I think it was, as they came off their last night shift, we did a, um, no, it was the following day, so after they had a chance to recover, we did a, got them all into a room and did a, and it was a psychological debrief. It wasn't a formal operational debrief. It was yeah. purely about, guys, you've had a tough block. We understand that, you know, there's going to be consequences. You're going to have problems with what you've seen. It's okay that you might be feeling okay now. It's okay if you're not feeling okay now. And if you, it's okay to be okay today, but not okay tomorrow. And also one of our, our in-house psychologists did a bit of a debrief around how people handle and react to stress and what they, they could expect of themselves over the coming weeks days, weeks, months, um, and that, uh, and I think that helped tremendously as well. We also had a, a lived experience guy come in. It was interesting, the feedback with one of our team who works up, up north, he, um, he was involved with the Bali bombings. He was there on the night. 
and he saw a friend die and he and he went through hell afterwards and he lost the plot but he's actually dug himself back out again and he shared his story about the effects of being involved with something of that nature um, and the the reaction to that was quite quite interesting about half of them connected with it understood the value of having heard it and then um, were very positive about the fact that it had been arranged for for them specifically and there was a whole bunch of people as oh, we didn't need that it just took me to a dark place so I didn't need to you know it was the, it was very interesting how each each everybody reacted to it subsequent to that uh, two about 10 days after that we created a like we've got these people being contacted regularly by peer support psychologists doing an evaluation process around where they're at making sure they know they can reach out pathways going forward we talked about the options as to um, how best support them um, so we decided family was important so we created a, a, a barbecue day and a bit of a family sort of day for the kids and invited partners and children to come along and we had a team of um, psychologists there and peer supporters there and the idea of that was to give the partners an opportunity to understand the effects on the, their what you know what they might be seeing in their loved ones and um, how they could maybe react to and support and to not get distressed by the fact that something really weird's going on in my husband or my wife's headspace kind of thing so wow. that was pretty well received um, every so subsequently um, Everybody who was involved at the coalface plus the leaders on the day were invited to and instructed they should um, go through a debrief with the psychologist, and um, that's that's been quite valuable. Some some of our the guys who were in the mosque working with the the victims and and the and the pools of blood mm. have been back two or three times to follow that process up because they have have felt it quite significantly. Every, we've done a couple of operational debriefs subsequent to that. Um, we made sure we had the psychologists and the, the peer support network sitting in that space when those debriefs were run. Everybody who responded on the day, because of the rate in which it happened, we didn't have good paperwork around patient contacts. We didn't know who had responded where and how and when. Frontline crews got mixed up because they would, some of them jumped off trucks and ended up in the mosque and others ended up crossing over to double crew the truck going back to the, taking the patient to the hospital. So how that all played out, we've got no systems that track that kind of stuff. No. So everybody who responded on the day went through an interview process and it was a... It was what they did, what their sequence of events were. Yep, their recollection of how the day played out. When that happened for each of them, we put a psychologist in the, in the space with them. Um, and so they, they had a choice really of whether that person sat with them through the, through the interview or whether they you know, just went and had a coffee with them afterwards. Um, yeah, and one of the things, the most recent thing we did was um, that, that there was a review group put together to try and piece piece together what the response looked like on the day. And that process took through the end of July. We've managed to deliver that report. Um, and it was based, It was a very forensic process and it was based on every element of data, videos from ED, police videos, um, all our ambulance tracking data, um, all the interviews. So the story was written as a result of the compilation of all that information. We, we, we delivered a presentation. We invited the crews that responded back in, and this is just in September, mid-September, and outlined to them what the response was on the day. So they kind of felt they knew what the package was because there'd been a lot of conjecture between you know, people talking and yeah. their impressions of what actually happened. and element talk and yeah, and they were. And, yeah, and who, how many you know, how serious yeah. the patients were. And so we laid all that out to them and we brought the psychologists back in again for that as well. 
and that um, that was received exceptionally well. <coughs> um, and they, it was probably the, 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 it was, it's not the closing because it won't close for a very yeah. long time, but it was one of those, I think, um, sentinel points in terms of the process of closure for them. And um, there was some quite strong emotions and some definite shows of uh, appreciation as to how we'd approach the welfare and and uh, the way in which it had run and you know people who had been involved with previous big incidents um, and been very bitter about what what they'd felt after that were extremely complimentary about how the welfare process and the support process has sat behind so we're still monitoring um, all our staff that were responding um, we have a tracking tool that we're using to see where they're in. We've got, there was 180 odd people, and we've still got six that we consider sit in the red, so. Cool. Mm. I mean, hearing, hearing the process and what, what's, what, you, what they've been doing since the event, I mean, that sounds amazing. I guess the support, and, and the thing I loved about it also was the fact their partners or their family or their, you know they were involved in the process because you're, you're spot on I mean they're going to be witnessing some things some behavior potentially as well and so getting them involved is I mean it sounds like a really really a, a great idea yeah so it's 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 been the term well it's, it's the combination I guess of, of a whole bunch of people being listened to around what yeah. works what doesn't work how we can make it work uh, it's been a truly a, a pretty strong team effort try you know with a focus on recruiting the right expertise into the room and expertise doesn't come into the form of it's a psychologist so whatever our psychologist tells us we need to do it's also moderated by the opinion of somebody who was at the cold face or somebody yeah. who knows how volunteers think somebody who knows you know that's important that part isn't it uh, very important and so i think it you know it's and some messaging i'm hearing here too is that it's it's more than just an individual's perception it's more than just medicine it's about the, the holistic package that, yeah. that you need to take into account and i, I you know i, I have a quite a, a a good feeling in the sense quite privileged quite proud to have been a part of I've been able to help facilitate that process. I think it's... When you look back on, on the, not the operational or the event itself, but the handling of it and the post the event, I mean, you, you couldn't, I mean, do you find any opportunities to improve that process? I mean, because that's, I mean, that sounds really, I don't know how you could Im improve that sort of thing. Yeah, so there were some, some um, just what we were talking about actually was we recognised that the wheels were falling off. So we actually sort of, was a, I think, an improvement process as we went along. We, um, each of us sitting around the, the leadership table, um, approaches things slightly differently. And um, we have the sense of ownership of operational staff or this, the team, the team that responds is, is kind of, is our responsibility. We, we carry the can for that working or not working. So from a welfare perspective, we had under our, our emergency operations center stayed open for two weeks post the incident. And there was, so we could handle the recovery and the media and the, there was a whole bunch of community connection and parades and commemorative events and so so we need to be all over that plus retain our business as usual capacity as well so one of the streams we had in our eoc structure was welfare and what we were doing in that welfare space was that that, that individual had said responsibility for a lot of the communication to the team okay we also had over uh, on another stream, we had our peer support and our psychologist team working on peer support. And we ended up with some conflicting messaging coming between what we were trying to do from the operations space and what they were trying to do from the welfare space. Mm -hmm. And the family connection part came out of the operations space. Yeah, right. 
Do you remember it was the guy who was looking after the welfare there said, we need to be doing this. And we said, yep, you're right, let's get it done. Let's make some stuff happen in that space. And the messaging that started to go out around making that happen ended up in a little bit of conflict with the welfare, what was happening in the welfare team. Um, when we realized that it was creating barriers, we felt that the welfare team should have, we needed to reassert the ground rules around how the welfare team responded. And it's not a competition, but uh, we felt it was important that the welfare response was a service response to what the operational needs were. So they actually lent support based around what, after a debate and agreement, you know, that we delivered in unity, what was an agreed package of care, if you like. So it wasn't one team and another team both trying to deliver against or outdo each other on. And it was about communication, it was about... So that was on the fly? That was on the fly, yeah. It was recognising that there was some disruption, there was some yeah. issues starting to arise and reacting to that. And I think that was, that worked well when we, when we picked up on it, that it was an issue. What's really interesting about that is obviously, you, you know, with the, you know, unfortunately, Christchurch has had a fair, chance, a fair share of disasters, you know, mostly, obviously, natural disasters with the earthquakes. But, I mean, to learn from those events, to understand what they, what worked, what didn't from a, you know, from a post-event support, um, psychologically support, but also even things like offering them to making it an optional thing for them to be able to continue their roster or not, as opposed to being told, no, you're not going to. I mean, it's just amazing that that, that was, you know, it's, it's actually been implemented and it's been in effect because you've learned from the lessons. And, and I mean, that's, that's something that's got to give some kudos because especially you coming in there for three weeks, I mean, it's a short amount of time to, to be able to learn and see what's going on with that. But obviously surrounded with good people as that's well. That's why I say that's why I say it's about the team. It's, it's about, I see myself as being the facilitator of a very strong team mm. and utilizing, you know, make sure it's, it's steered correctly and utilizing the strengths and, you know, cliche stuff, supporting the weaknesses of that team, really. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, It was quite a unique situation. The one thing I, 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 I've always been quite strong on is I, I think you need to take egos out of the equation. And our, our response in, in this case, um, I think it was, it was a, an all of organization response. Um, we had it from the CEO down through the ops director down through the assistant director of operations through me, through right down through the leadership team to the ground, and everybody was on the same page with it. And I think that's a, a true organisational commitment mm. to, to making it happen, and that makes a, a hell of a difference. When it comes down a stream and it's directed by an ego, the wheels fall off, mm. it. and it's it's quite a strong theme of mine. Is it's got to be about you know. Holistically, about the end result, it's about elevating as to being outcome. Yeah, as to outcome, mm. and you know, if you react truly and honestly from the heart in terms of representing a response that generates the right outcome, then I think it's easy to get the message right. It's yeah. easy to make it happen. So where to from here? I mean, this is. I mean, you've been a baptism of fire in that role, obviously. So. That was you join end of Fe end of February, where say ten months, uh, nine months into the into the role. Uh, how, what do you see yourself doing? I mean, continuing this role obviously for a certain amount of time. Is there a direction you're taking with it? Um, we're still uh, <laughs> interesting. That that's quite an interesting question actually, because I, I came in with a with a, a few sort of focuses that I wanted to, strategies that I wanted to implement and my first three weeks were quite successful in doing that and then everything went on hold. <laughs> for good for, for, <laughs> And for a good period of time, a surprisingly long period of time actually. Uh, so I've kind of just in the last probably 
month, six weeks, really starting to get back on track with trying to find some of that focus. But this is, this recovery is still quite a significant part of day-to-day business. I mean, here I am talking to you about it here today. Yeah. Um, so it's still, it's still is playing, it's still quite influential. Last Saturday night, I went to a, um, uh, it was the, was the FIANS, which is the Federation of Islamic Associations of New Zealand, um, wanting to recognise people who had supported the Islamic community in the response to the mosque attacks. And it was a room full of 600 odd people and ambulance was up for a little trophy kind of thing that acknowledges oh, wow. our response on, at the time. But what surprised me was that um, there was probably 50 of those presented and the diverse range of um, organizations, individuals uh, that were, uh, that received them was just phenomenal. I, I mean, what I came to realize is that 600 odd people sitting in that room, every one of them had a circle of people around them, not probably not quite as big as what St. John Ambulance is mm. for Canterbury, but every one of them had a circle of people around them that had been involved and supporting that community and bringing that sort of Christchurch together as one around as a consequence of that that event on that day. Let's touch on the resilience of the community in Christchurch. I mean, how how amazing is it? Oh, I think it's incredible. I um, the response to these attacks, and I, 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 you know, the Muslim community is a real testament to, to how they reacted to this, is to an act of hate and terror that have actually turned around and and given and forgiven, basically. And um, and pretty much uh, respond with love. That's where the Araha comes from and um, and they've clearly demonstrated that in many ways. In this room the other night there's there's victims and I've sat alongside a number of these victims at a number of different events. That uh, that don't show any ill thoughts or don't criticise or yeah. um, you know oh, they're they're remorseful. They've, they've they've all suffered loss, like whether it's yeah. personal physical loss or whether it's family members or whatever. They've suffered loss. The whole of the Muslim community across New Zealand and across the world have felt that, mm. but the, they've all promoted. Uh, 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 a sense of connection, a sense of unity, a sense of coming together. Mm. The citizens of Christchurch have, have responded in that same way. Kiyokaha uh, was the, the expression that was used after the shootings, and it was, we are one, basically. Mm. Um, as a nation, you know, Jacinda Ardern's promoted a, a fairly uh, positive messaging around, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so out of this act of terror has really come this kind of this growth of unity and, and um, the sharing of connection, if you like, across Christchurch, across New Zealand and across the, the world to some extent. I mean, I think even here in Australia, it's had an impact. So. Sure. I mean, and, and the lessons, I guess, you know, from you being able to, and, and others, I guess, as well, that are doing it, to be able to go around and share the experience and the lessons and and um, yeah the impact and we, because I mean we can only think about what that would have been like but uh, it would have been a completely different um, feel well, experience to actually be in it so I could we couldn't mm. imagine what that would be like. So, so the um, part of the healing process for uh, for a lot of our staff was that sense of connection with the community. Um, mm. If you. And look, I, I, I wasn't at the coalface on the day, but we, as a leadership team, we ended up intensely involved for weeks afterwards. And not even the staff who were responding business as usual had been at the events on the day, didn't actually see what was happening for us in the background. Media events and all sorts of other connections across different agencies and um, a lot of planning, a lot of strategizing going on. And, and uh, <clears throat> if you stepped out into the communities with your green uniform on, you weren't in an ambulance responding. Um, some of the memorial sites that were there, if you attended in, in your green uniform, the sense of appreciation, the sense of connection, the sense of, of gratitude. Uh, gratitude was just overwhelming. People would just walk up, give you a hug and 
sort of, you know, people you're strangers, people of all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of yeah. religious backgrounds. It was, uh, it, yeah, it was incredibly moving in many, many ways, and quite healing, I think, for for a lot of our, our staff as well. So, yeah, that sense of community is so important, isn't it? Oh, very much. So we couldn't, we couldn't eat the amount of food that was bought and then dropped off at the right? ambulance stations and then make ready hub, and that was up and down the country. That was quite seriously my team that I'd just left up in Fongaroo couldn't keep keep up with the volume of food that was being dropped in as an acknowledgement and thank you for the response that we'd done in Christchurch and that happened up and down the length of the country. Wow. People, offers of accommodation, offers of, uh, you name it, it was just incredible. Coffee vouchers being dropped in, so it was uh, donations of, of cash because St John is a um, charitable, charitable organisation. So. Thank you for your service, obviously, for the people in the community in Christchurch, but thank you more so for sharing your story and the lessons that you've learned from that. Uh, and we appreciate you coming here and, and sharing that story and, and, and your journey. But um, thanks for being such a great leader in what you're doing. Well, thank you. I, yeah, what can I say? I think it's praise probably not necessarily deserved, but... Thanks, Wally, and thanks for coming and joining me on, on, the, uh, on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.